welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to another Dietitian Connection podcast episode. My name is Marie Ferguson and I'm the founder and director of Dietitian Connection. And it's such a privilege today to have Professor Louise Burke with me. Louise is a sports dietitian with nearly 40 years of experience in the education and counselling of elite athletes. She's worked at the Australian Institute of Sport for 30 years, first as head of sports nutrition and then as chief of nutrition strategy. Louise was a team dietitian for the Australian Olympic teams from 1996 to 2012 Summer Olympic Games. And her publications include over 350 papers in peer-reviewed journals and book chapters and the authorship or editorship of several textbooks on sports nutrition. Louise was appointed as the chair in sports nutrition in the Mary McKillop Institute of Health Research at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne in 2014. And she recently took up this position in a full-time capacity in 2020. Thank you so much for joining me today, Louise. It's a privilege, Marie. Our paths really haven't crossed that much because I'm clearly not a sports dietitian, but I've just, um, you know, from all of my colleagues that have worked with you over the years, just always been in awe. And I think the last time we caught each other was actually overseas. I often see people overseas at the American Dietetic FINCI conference, which of course we wouldn't be able, we wouldn't be going, lucky it was last year and not this year. That's right. Um, How have you been managing in, in COVID times? Um, well, like everybody, it's just strange and it's just that feeling of I wonder if life will ever get back to normal, but you suddenly start, um, you know, realising that you can do things differently. It's, um, you know, what you took for granted um, doesn't need to be there and you can still be productive and and enjoy what you're doing. So it's um, probably a, a time when an old dog can learn some new tricks. Totally agree. Totally agree. Um, So let's go all the way back in terms of why you chose to become a dietitian, Louise. Oh, that's a very funny question. And I'm an example of someone who had no idea what they wanted to be when they grew up and didn't have a lot of good careers advice back then. And so I really stumbled into dietetics completely by accident. In fact, a lot of my career has really been just an accidental stumble. um, Sometimes you look back at people and think that, oh, they must have known what they were doing. If they're successful, they must have um, had a really strong, committed path. But, you know, mine has been um, a really funny place to get to where I've got. And I only studied um, nutrition really by accident. I, I had thought I might do medicine, but wasn't really convinced that was right. And I started a science degree. And in the middle of the first year, Um, there was some publicity from Deakin University, which had just become a university from being a a technical college. And it um, highlighted some of the courses that were um, unusual to Deakin. And one of them was dietetics. I I had no idea you could be a dietitian. And, you know, when I looked at it and I was already interested in nutrition from my own perspective, I thought, gosh, imagine being paid to listen to what people eat all day. How good's that? (laughs) 
And so I was able to switch to Deakin in the middle of the year and um, started the degree, the nutrition degree, not realising that then there was a further step to becoming a dietitian, but I came out the other end um, almost by accident. And it was only also by accident when I was studying nutrition that I was able to put the sport part together with the nutrition. And that was, um, again, a real accident. I, I was um, part of a, a very small degree. There was only 20 students in dietetics back then. And our the supervisor or the year coordinator, Dr. Richard Reed, invited all of us home to his place for, for lunch. And, you know, as a, as a starving student, you were just amazed to see so much good food. And I noticed that Richard wasn't really eating a lot of it. He was only just, he had a plate and he had some lettuce and some cheese on it. And I commented on that and he said, oh, yes. He said, I'm, I'm um, running a marathon next weekend and this is... Um, this is me carbohydrate loading. There's been a um, a new study that's been reported by the Scandinavians showing that if you deplete your muscle glycogen stores and then switch to a high carbohydrate diet, you can you can super compensate glycogen and um, you know improve your marathon time. And just this light bulb went on inside my head because I already loved sport and um, was interested in nutrition. That these things connected. And so I um, twisted Richard's arm and he was able to change the course for me to allow me to do a little research unit with him and um, sort of indulge this this area of sports nutrition. And so the, um, the whole idea that it sort of happened was just, you know, for me a complete stumble. But then the next big part of the, of the career journey for me was getting a job actually working with athletes and I did that by writing to my team St Kilda Football Club um, to their star player Trevor Barker and suggesting that this was going to be the way that that St Kilda could win a premiership and I I look back at that time and I thought just how naive was that Mm. to write a fan letter to this you know really famous footballer and thinking that he must have got like thousands of letters yeah. each day from girls, mm. gave that letter to the team doctor who rang me and offered me an opportunity to come down and work with the club. So, again, complete accident that mm. allowed me to start indulging my interest and then, you know, create this sort of pathway to sports nutrition becoming a thing. Mm. Not quite an accident because you did take the step to send the letter. Um, did they win the premiership that year? Uh, no, they still haven't won one. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Well, not 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 in, um, in my working lifetime. Okay. So it's un, unfulfilled business, unfulfilled <laughs> yes, business. Yes. And were you running marathons at the time when you um, were talking with Richard? Because I know you you are a champion triathlete and an Iron Woman and run marathons. Were oh no, look, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an absolute punter when it comes to these things, but I just um, persevere. But no, no, I was I just started doing some running. I had played lots of other team sport growing up, but you know the running boom was just starting in the 80s when I was um, studying um, nutrition, and so um, I eventually got onto running marathons and 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 triathlons as you said but for me it was just a it was an outlet for being able to you know keep myself interested in sport when I wasn't involved in a, in a team sport but then yeah. I realized that it was such a great way to experiment in, experiment on yourself in terms of being like that n equals one sports nutrition yeah. experiment and so 
you know, I, I did triathlons, I did Ironman triathlons in the days before all the sports nutrition products and the way that you consumed carbohydrate during those events was, um, you know, bananas and in the case of the Ironman in Hawaii, the um, the guava jelly sandwich was the key thing at the aid stations. And, I, mm. and so I can remember doing that first Ironman and, and um, importing some guava jelly from Hawaii so that I could practice it in, in training. Mm. And now I look back and I think, oh, gosh, you know, we, we – the um the whole concept of having special sports foods and sports drinks was um obviously it's it's just changed the world of sports nutrition in so many ways but back then everyday food was what we had to play around with mm. and so where did you go from the St Kilda football club like what was your first sort of paid role was it with St Kilda or was it with yeah well I was look at was it was an honorary role at St Kilda and then I went on and, and worked with Carlton and Essendon and Geelong and other football clubs for which I did receive some payment. Um, I did take my first job as a dietitian in community health and then I did a, a permanent locum um, at Royal Melbourne Hospital for a year so I could consolidate my conventional dietetic skills. But I started a PhD by then with um, Richard and that, again, I wasn't really so much interested in the research angle. I was interested just in staying in touch with Richard and having access to a library where I could um, get references and, and read and, and start sort of pursuing my own academic following in sports nutrition. So it wasn't a career path or a well thought out idea. Yes, I was going to be a researcher and this is the way that you did it. It was really just a, a whole series of things that kept my interest alive in a time when the, you know, there was no real career pathway or, or mm. um, stream of, of sports nutrition people that you could um, interact with. And so I was just making it up as I went along mm. and then eventually started working in some sports medicine centres. And then in um, 1989, end of 1989, there was an advertisement for a dietitian at the Australian Institute of Sport. And I thought, gosh, that's... That was an idea whose time had come for me and I applied and the rest is history, really. It is history. <laughs> um, and what was your PhD on back in? Well, look, it was a really, a really simplistic PhD because Deakin didn't have an exercise laboratory at that stage and I was doing it um, part-time, as I said, really as an interest. So what I did was um, to do surveys of elite athletes um, in Australia and I compared their knowledge, their um, interest, their sort of concepts around sports nutrition with their actual intake and identified the first sort of feeling that sports nutrition wasn't a one-size-fits-all approach. It needed to be really um, centred on the kind of sport that athletes were doing, but also the culture in which they existed. So I looked at marathon runners versus triathletes versus team sport football versus um, weightlifters and worked with um, you know elite athletes in each of those sports to get a feel for what sports nutrition meant to them and how much the practice needed to be um, really individualised and periodised. And so even back then, you know, I was trying to promote this angle that it was more than just a, a, a one-size-fits-all, but that we really needed to think about athletes as having very specific and changing needs. Mm. 
And do you think having the PhD sort of got your foot in the door at AIS or what was it about you and your skills and um, that got you the job at AIS, do you think? Oh, gosh, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, maybe it was just my desperation. I mean, I was, I was so convinced that this was the, yeah. the job that was written for me yeah. um, that I made everybody else believe the same thing. And so it was you know, a wonderful opportunity and I you know, really feel so privileged and, and so thankful to um, Vicky Deacon who had set up the, the concept. When the AIS opened, it didn't have nutrition as a, a founding science. It, it um, had a physiology department that Dick Telford was the head of and he was very interested in nutrition and, and had... Um, established nutrition within the, the, the physiology work that was being done. But it wasn't until Vicky Deacon who um, came in to help him with a research project as a dietitian convinced him that this really was a specialty that needed its own expertise rather than, you know, a physiologist who was interested in nutrition, um, that the position was created. And then I went on to be able to create a department and and have a whole team of, of expert sports dietitians being able to fulfil that role with elite athletes. Mm. So three decades at AIS is, a, is a, I think, an unheard of in any any jobs, I think, to be somewhere for that long. Like what what was it about the AIS that kept you there for so long and what were some of the highlights over that time? Well, look, it was a magic place. It is a magic place. And mm. when I started, it was... Um, really small and there were really great friendships that were set up and collaborations between athletes and coaches and scientists. And it was an exciting time because we were making it up as we went along. In so many of the areas, there was, um, you know, just complete lack of, 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 of a real system or protocols and we had to make them up. We developed a lot of the science behind each of the disciplines and nutrition um, wasn't the only one that was developing sort of from the ground up. And the interaction with the coaches was a really special part. And I think that's, um, it's not just what the AOS was. I think life was a lot simpler then. And, you know, when you did things, you were really sim simply focused on, on what you were doing. And I, I often, you know, think back to some of those early days at the AOS where I went on um, trips with coaches. You know, I remember going on altitude camps for a month in the US with um, a swimming team where I'd manage it. There'd be the, the, the coach, there'd be myself and another scientist and, and the athletes and, you know, a group of 20 of us would, would go away for a month. And you were just simply involved with that. There wasn't this, um, you know, you, there was no laptops. You, you went away with a book to do some reading at night and you simply were there focused on what the athletes needed and at night time you'd sit around and have these incredible discussions with the coach about what he or she knew and what the athletes were thinking and how to work together and you know I think those simple times are incredibly wonderful for just being able to get every aspect of that relationship and the collaboration with the coach and the athletes happening. Like these days, you, you know, we're so busy and we're multi-channeling all the time and, you know, you might be away on a trip but you've got to race back to the room to get your emails done because everybody else thinks, you know, that you, you, they're available for them as well. And so I think those simpler times when those relationships and the complete serendipity that would come out of a um, 
of an interaction with, with an athlete. You know, these, these days we have workshops and you, you know, throw people together to try and make that happen in a, in a really contrived way. Whereas back in the simpler times, so much of what I know or appreciate about sport now has come from um, just that interaction with a coach over dinner rather than it being engineered into some sort of a, a workshop or a conference or some sort of a, a an interaction that may not capture it fully. Gosh, it would be nice to go back to the simpler times. Wouldn't it? <laughs> and I, I think we, in some aspects we have during COVID, but, you know, we if you're not in an office anymore, you miss those hallway conversations, which is what you're saying with those dinners. It's the conversations that you don't plan to have is where you sometimes get the best um, output. Yeah, absolutely. And also you recognise that so much of what's really important is intangible. And so, you know, coaching is, is an art as much as a scientist. And those wonderful coaches that have, you know, become very successful often have got there in ways like me that wasn't a a step-by-step pathway. They collected a lot of experiences and made mistakes and and had insights into what works that, you know, isn't in a textbook or a a scientific study or whatever it is. And so you were lucky just to be able to have those random conversations or see those activities that sparked something. And, you know, those are the, those are the things I think I, I, had my my baseline, if you like, of sports nutrition grounded on that would be very difficult to, to get in a different way today. I fondly consider you the queen of sports nutrition in Australia, and I think I'm right to do so, given you've been honoured with the Medal of the Order of Australia for your services to sports nutrition. Um, and I noticed you even have a Wikipedia page. I don't know another dietitian that has a Wikipedia page. But what, would, <laughs> what would be the... If I'm guessing there's so many highlights over that time at the IAS, but is there one or two that stand out for you? Well, look, thank you. You are being very kind. And, and the Wikipedia page is, is, is a, a lovely tradition that's been started by Greg Blood, who was one of the, um, the wonderful people at the AIS that I worked with. He was part of our information centre. And after his retirement, he, it's made it his life's work as a historian of the AIS so that when you do leave the AIS, he writes up a little um, Wikipedia page on what you've achieved. So thank you to Greg and <laughs> thank yeah. you to the AIS. For- I love that. And that's why I love <laughs> doing these podcasts because I think it's the history just does need to be captured. Yeah, and look, what he did recently was he wrote up a, a history of 30 years of the AIS and sports nutrition. And look, oh, gosh, I relive really so many wonderful occasions you know know, back then we really did make it up as we went along and so a lot of the things that we did with traveling with athletes and setting up food service for them and um you know the first sort of um research studies where we might have standardized diets or done some sort of intervention we made so much of this stuff up and you know we did it without a lot of the um the technology or the things that make life so efficient now. And I've got, you know, so many wonderful um, stories of going to competitions and, and, you know, cooking for athletes or teaching them to, to cook for themselves. And, you know, just the, the interactions with some sort of now famous people in their very early days. And, you know, some of the things that you um, might've taught them. My, my son's now 16 and he's a, a real 
keen follower of sport and the fact that I know some of his idols, you know, they're now coaches or they've got children playing in sport sometimes. But, you know, the fact that one of them can come up to me and say, oh, I still cook your secret lasagna recipe. (laughs) Those times were uh, were just just fantastic. I I think um, if I had to... I had to choose a, a couple of really special ones. Um, you know, the Olympic Games is such a wonderful experience to, to be part of. And you know, I've had both the um, experience of of walking in opening ceremonies, et cetera, but also being, you know, very um, connected to um, gold medals. You know, one of the ones that I value the most is, is Jared Talent's medal from 2012 in London. Um, partly because of the work that we did along the way to get there, which was looking at new new ways to fuel endurance sport and working on um, a very aggressive carbohydrate intake during exercise, which at the time wasn't well known, but you know we we worked on it, I guess, in secret um, in the lead up, and all those times we'd go out and training, and I'd be on a bike, just chatting to to Jared as he was as, as he was training during a, a Canberra winter to um to get to london and then on the day he you know came in second over the line but was later given the gold medal because of um the the russian ahead of him being found to have cheated and and we kind of suspected that at a time at the time but for jared um what he managed on the day was was um in his mind the gold medal and luckily you know the rest of the world got to see that down the track but having those experiences where you know you work on a campaign with some um, a single athlete and, and and his coach Brent Valance and just the um the privilege of being able to get to know these people and how much sacrifice and commitment they put into their sport and then to see it all come to fruition was a a really a special time and you know I've got a a lovely poster on my wall and you know from one of the London 2012 posters that, that Jared signed for me. And when I look at that some days, you know, and you're having a bad day and you're sort of um, thinking, oh, we should all make sense. I look at that and just, you know, go back to how it can make sense when you just put one foot in front of the other and just mm. gradually get towards where your goals are leading. Mm. And um, sometimes you do get those wonderful outcomes that um, uh, just, the, the, the culmination of a whole lot of other people's work. I remember you speaking, I heard you speak once and you talked about, it must have been closer to 2012 um, when you were talking about the, the time that you spent with Jared. I mean, it's an enormous amount of time that you spent with him. Um, so that, that relationship must be a really close one. It is. And, and look, you know, when you're doing it, you sort of, it's just part of what it needs to be done, you know. In, in some sports, you've got the need to have, um, you know, intake during the during the session itself, and it's most convenient just to have someone on a bike being able to to do it. So it was an end, it was a means to an end. But in it, you um, you realise just how important and how lucky you are to be able to create the the relationships with people. And um, one of the other reasons I like uh, race walking is that they walk at the running speed that I can manage. And so, you know, these days when we have our research camps, I'm lucky to be out to go out and um, train with them. And to be able to just to listen to the camaraderie or listen to some of the things that they're talking about and reflect on it or watch what they're doing and sort of think about, is there a better way of being able to do it? It, it comes from being absolutely immersed in it. 
and the um, you, know, you, you often get the, the great outcomes, but the process of getting to that outcome is also really enjoyable. And it's a really, it is a privilege to be able to hang out with people who are the best in the world at what they do and learn from them. And even though I'm my, my own athletic skills are quite, um, are quite minor. They're very. Um, I've just been lucky to be at the right place at the at the right time in terms of some of the um, athletic experiences that, that I've had. But um, you know, to to be able to pick the brains of people who are truly the best at what they do is great. Not just for sport, but for many other aspects of your life where you think there there's a better way of doing things, and I can make myself better. Mm. And you are a member of the Nutrition Working Group of the International Olympic Committee, and I think you've been to six Olympics, if I'm correct. Five. Well, five. I've been I've been to five officially, and then okay. I had involvement with the um, the Barcelona Olympics in a in a less official way. Okay. So tell us what it's like to work with the Australian team and be at the Olympics. I I just I just have a buzz thinking about it. Look, it is it is an extraordinary um, privilege, and. You know, I realise that when I have had that privilege, I'm, you know, simply the um, being the the arms on the day of a lot of other people that have done the work. And even in the nutrition sphere, a lot of the athletes that um, go to the games with a special nutrition strategy to practice have, have accumulated that because of the work of a lot of my colleagues. And you know, often on the day of the of their event, I might be the one that's sort of um, helping them to finalise it. But it's really um, me just being um the you know the the final tool of of a lot of work that's been done by a lot of people but look it's it's a really pressurized um atmosphere i can remember the first olympics that i went to officially in in atlanta in 96 and by that stage i'd been to commonwealth games and i'd been to a lot of um, world championships in different sports but this just felt different it, it there's so much more pressure it's sort of exponentially more um important to people and and so that pressure to win and the fact that, you know, there are so fewer opportunities to win, like any gold medal that you win at the Olympics is just an incredible achievement. And there's a lot of luck as well as all the, um, the work that goes into it. And, and, you know, sometimes when people like Mark Spitz or um, Michael Phelps win multiple medals, it makes it feel like it's, oh, you know, anyone could do it or, you know, you can do it over and over again and that's not that rare. But it actually is, and and you know when I was at the first Olympics, I can remember just that feeling of pressure and stress coming from everywhere you went. All the athletes were sort of feeling the same way because even though there's a a winner on of one medal on the day, and you know there's sometimes the silver medalist and the bronze medalist are out of their tree as well because they didn't expect to get it. But you know in every event, there's a lot of people who put the same amount of dedication and time and they also had that same dream and and for them it was that special day as well, but it didn't end up with the ultimate glory. And so it is a time when you know you need to think about um, not just what happened on the day, but still feel pleased and and um, fulfilled with the work that went in to get you there and then, you know, the need to be able to reassemble and find another dream to to um, to go on after the, the event so that um, life does go on and it's more than just about gold medals. It's all about the ability to commit yourself to do things and to receive fulfilment from completing the task even if the outcome wasn't um, the ideal. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I just feel sorry for the ones who, you know, have a bad day or whatever or aren't well on that one day after all of that work for four years. But, yeah, like you said, there's other other things that you've got to keep in mind in the bigger picture. That's right. Were you meant to go to Tokyo in 2020? Um, look, I wasn't going in the um, headquarters role that I had previously had. That's um, been you know, something that other people have taken the baton from me and, and gone on and done wonderful things. But I was going to have a small role with the athletics team in going to Sapporo. The, um, the race walk and the marathon had been moved from Tokyo to Sapporo um, to try and find better weather, which meant that they needed to split the team up and... Mm. I had just been invited to go and, and be part of that. So I was looking forward to that and I really feel so um, disappointed for so many athletes because it's not even, um, you know, if, if you could be sure that Tokyo will be on next year and mm. that um, they can plan their progress and their mm. pathway to that in the optimal way, you'd feel, well, it was, you know, sad to miss out in 2020, but, the next 12 months will, will um, make up for it. But even as we talk today, there's still so much uncertainty yeah. about how pe- people are going to manage to get there. You know, even if it's on in the way that it's being planned now, um, how all the athletes are going to manage to optimise their training and to do all the specialist training around heat and um, acclimatisation and also, you know, even just the qualification pathways. There's, mm. there's so much that's unknown. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very time to be an athlete and the people working with them yeah I can't imagine like you know we've had to postpone our annual event dietitians unite a few times but I can't imagine doing that on the scale of the Olympic Games and the number of stakeholders and people that are involved so yeah fingers crossed it comes off at some point um obviously Jared's gold medal was a highlight for you at the Olympics was there any other highlights that stand out for you um, look, this, this, every Games has had its own little um, specialty, I guess, and, and I've, you know, been part of so many other um, successful stories. There's been, you know, many wonderful medals and swimming that I was involved with earlier in, in my career. And um, if, you know, I think back to each of the Olympics, there was something special. I remember the um, the Beijing Olympics was when we were first interested in how can we help athletes to hydrate and to stay cool in these really harsh environmental conditions? And we worked for the four years prior to that on the slushies and the internal cooling with the use of um, ice melting inside your body. And mm. um, one of the the people who I'm still currently working with, um, Meg Ross, was doing a, a PhD with me at that time. And her PhD was all about developing both the the strategies of optimising the pre-cooling and internal cooling, but also then thinking about how we were going to be able to implement that in Beijing because in so many of the events which might use it best, some of the endurance events like um, the, the road cycling and triathlon and um, um, the marathon, many of those events were held in some of the, the more exotic locations in in Beijing. For example, the, um, the the time trial, the road cycling time trial was held at the Great Wall of China and it was mm. in the middle of nowhere mm. and we weren't um, guaranteed that there'd be an electricity supply. So how can you have a slushy machine mm. without electricity? And so, um, you know, part of the 
part of the, um, I guess, the implementation of all, all this science is being having being able to have that pragmatic way of being able to do it and being able to be really flexible um, on the day. And I was I was um, talking to people about Beijing the other day because you know that was one of the of the Olympics where the the heat factor was so well understood and targeted prior to, to that. But um, I, I remember not just um, the cycling time trial for the the slushy machine, but also because um, Cadell Evans, who was one of our competitors riding in that race, had um, asked me to bring out his pre-event meal and give me the, um, the menu that he wanted. And I had um, to find a way to get from the, the Beijing village to the, the Great Wall of China without speaking any Mandarin myself. Um, so there I was with a plate of pasta with olive oil and eggs <laughs> that he wanted and, and I had to... Had to um, Bluff my way two hours away in a car to get. Oh my the, gosh! And um, you know, just the the whole pressure of um, it almost felt like a, a movie where you know the clock's ticking and I'm on Mission Impossible to get myself. Yeah. Um, and I went through so many different funny experiences to finally get there and turned it up. You know, I got there probably fifty seconds before he actually oh needed it and was able to hand it over. And you know, he probably had his own set of nerves to. Um, to think about that morning so he had no need to look at my face and realise that I'd um, just about done um, an Olympic marathon myself to get it there. But <laughs> there are all sorts of those little – I mean, and everyone that's been at the Olympics will have um, those funny little stories about, you know, what it took to get things happening and it might have looked perfect on the day, but there was a lot of stuff going on under the water beneath it to to make it happen. Mm. And that's the skills of a dietitian, I guess, to be able to problem solve <laughs> in those high pressure moments well, that, as well. Yeah, that, that's mm. right. I think you know everyone that's been to the Olympics will will tell you that there were so many things where people had to be able to be cool under pressure, have a plan B, and be able to implement it without stressing everybody else and making everybody you know just feel like this is this is what it was meant to happen and um yeah then see the success how many dietitians have been lucky enough to be part of the australian team at the olympics and what role yes. do they play yes so since 96 there's been a headquarter role for a dietitian um and since then that role's been um carried out very well by people like Greg Cox and more recently Gary Slater. And then many of the sports have um, recognised the importance of nutrition and have had dietitians as part of their sports science entourage, often in a management role as well. So people like um, Bromon Lundy and Liz Broad, um, Greg Shaw, have also worked with their various sports and then and been able to be added to the the team. Often it's because um, many of the sports are uh, played at the Olympic Games at venues that are away from the main venue, and so we've been able to be successful by setting up food service for um, the teams closer to where the competition venue, or we've had the athletes actually living outside the Olympic Village because it's more convenient or more conducive to them being able to perform best on their day and so I mean a lot of the work that the sports dietitian will do is is around delivery of, of food service and logistics and just that pragmatic approach to being able to have the nutrition available where it's needed and you know it's funny because you know we often think of ourselves as, as being science-based 
And I remember when I studied dietetics thinking, oh, do I have to really do food service? And, you know, thinking it was such a, um, oh, you know, imposition um, that a scientist would have to um, do that. And yet so much of your career is really then based on your ability to make food service work. And so um, I wish I'd paid more attention back when I had the opportunity to learn it from first principles. I think many younger dietitians don't see the necessity of food service either. So maybe they'll think twice when they hear your story here. Um, yeah, nothing you do in, in dietetics is ever wasted. You know, I've, I've um, had lots of ways in which I've been able to use things that I've learned, you know, whether it's the knowledge or whether it's the skill factor from, from one aspect where you think, oh, that's not really what I want to do or what I want to be. But then it comes in so handy later because, you know, everything about nutrition is so interrelated. And over three decades, you must have seen a lot of changes in the way sports nutrition, um, you know, is, is managed. You talked about the introduction of um, nutrition, sports nutrition products. What sorts of changes have you seen over the, the three decades, either that have been positive or perhaps you want to go back to those simpler times that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, look. I think there's good and bad with everything. The the um the way in which technology's made so many things really efficient is amazing. I mean, I I um you know back in my very early days as a, as a student, you know, when you wanted to analyse a food record, you um you had tables. You went and looked up the composition of something and wrote out all the different nutrients on a and added them up by hand, and it was just such a a lengthy process to do. And then we had, you know, more um, technology being able to computerise that. And, you know, now we're getting to the stage where we may be able to have um, food photos being able to be um, artificially or have artificial intelligence embedded in them that they will convert a photo into a food composition. It just seems a, an amazing thing. And all the automation of all the different t technology, the wearables that now collect data for us, etc. So there's a lot of um, great information that's available. But one of the things that I really worry about is um, people having really good first principles knowledge of what they're doing so that they can spot the errors or put things into context. And, you know, I look at a lot of um, young scientists coming out now and there's you know, so many of these wonderful um, information collecting devices but when they spit out a number and it's to two decimal places and it just looks really precise mm -hmm. many people really don't question is it possible that that number's right you know mm. so there's all ways in which I think we need to be really good scientists in understanding the the, the basic principles of what we're measuring and what the physiology and the biochemistry of the body is so that we do question what comes out rather than it just accepting it all and then, you know, jumping to, to make special conclusions which mightn't be um, really possible when you take into account the errors that, and the variability that can occur. Yeah, definitely. And research has been such a big part of your career from what I can tell. How What do you think in terms of the research aspect in terms of your success with elite athletes, do you think it's played a large role? Well, look, it has, but it's again, it's an accident. And I, I don't really think of myself as a researcher. My husband's a researcher and, and I think of myself as a hobbyist, if you like, that I've done research as um, a, a means of gathering the evidence base for some of the practice that we've developed. Um, 
but in more recent times, I found it to have a, a lot of other benefits that I hadn't um, appreciated before. So the kinds of research projects I do these days, or which have, you know, I've sort of come to specialise in, are these research camps in which we embed a project. And what's different about it from the very early days of my research is that we think of the athletes and the coaches as co-researchers, they're collaborators, and we only ever investigate something that's of real interest to the athletes and they want to know the questions and answers. And by involving them in the process, we really make sure that the investigation is real, it's realistic, and that if we're trying to measure performance as one of the outcomes of, of the investigation, by having the athletes really invested in it, when we really get true performances, you know, it's really difficult sometimes to know if something works or not, but if everybody's um, invested to the same degree of understanding it and it's it's to their best um, purposes that, that they find out whether something does change their performance, then you can really trust the outcomes much more. And we've also found that the process of being involved in the research camps enhances performance because athletes come in and they get to train with each other each day and they push each other in training more than they would in their normal squad or by themselves. They talk and they learn from each other and they create these incredibly wonderful environments, like really family environments where serendipitous outcomes just happen. You know, we've had so many wonderful outcomes from our supernova studies, not just in terms of the papers that we've published and the, um, the scientific outcomes that we've discovered, but the interactions between the athletes and the coaches and the young group of scientists and volunteers that come and be part of these things, it's a really infectious environment. And, you know, the, the, the good things have really spread and have created just, a, you know, a really international outcome. And I wouldn't have thought of research as having that as one of its... Um, it's sidelines, if you like, but for me, they, these experiences have, have been really wonderful because it's really enriched the lives of so many people within the group, as well as producing a scientific outcome. Mm. I love that. Um, you know, again, it's back to relationships and um, connections, and yeah, the power of that can't be understated. In terms of the athletes, and you mentioned that they were collaborating, so they're they're actually competitors, but in this research camp, they're collaborating. Is that, am I hearing? Yes, yeah. and look, I've um, had wonderful opportunities to mm. work with a, a range of sports where this is this is a reality. I mean, and particularly with our supernova studies where they are international rivals, if you like, it's been incredible to see how well they integrate with each other and they cooperate to get the best. They're, they're really involved in promoting their sport and they feel that you know success comes when everybody's successful so mm. it's been eye-opening to think that these people would train with each other and share secrets and mm. and um you know be wonderful friends it doesn't change when they get to the the race that mm. you know before the gun goes off they're they're competitors and um you know they'll do what they have to to, <laughs> to beat each other but um they still recognise that they get the best out of themselves by being integrated in, into a group and when everybody pushes each other to better things, then you improve your own performance. So 
that idea that you know athletes can be cooperative rather than um, secret and and um, you know competing to the detriment of each other is is, is a bit of a myth. I think there's mm. there's a whole lot of different ways to become successful, and I've really enjoyed that collaborative spirit that allows everybody to improve um, and people feel individually they still benefit from that. I think it's really important for dietitians too. I think sometimes we're competitive with each other and actually if we collaborated, we, as you say, you know, be yeah. stronger together. Yeah, and that, that's, that's one of the things I think if I, if I go back to the early stages of my career, it's a myth that there's only a certain amount of success to go around and that if somebody else is successful, then that means that they've taken that opportunity away from you. I mean, I, I think success is, is an infinite quantity and that, you know, by working together, everybody be, can be successful, but also the, the feeling of that success is, is much more rewarding than, you know, being someone that did everything by themselves and, and you know, tried to stop other people from being successful as a way of promoting themselves as, 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 the, as the route to that success. I think that's really one of the principles of Sports Dietitians Australia, which you were a founding member of the executive committee. Can you tell me a little bit more about the time of setting up SDA and how you see that playing such an important role in training our future sports dietitians? Yeah, look, that is a great story because we started as a special interest group of Sports Medicine Australia. And so a lot of people identify nutrition as being one of their areas of interest. And so our group started off with um, doctors and physiologists and psychologists as well as dietitians and even back then we were more likely to call ourselves sports nutritionists because um, you know back then careers in dietetics were really based around clinical roles and you know most dietitians worked in hospitals or community health centers or had you know very um, strong clinical roles and we sort of wanted to be different and we wanted to be groovy and so we thought if we called ourselves sports nutritionists that would um, distinguishes us, distinguishes from um, those with the really, um, you know, the the, the the clinical role that that dietetics was um, known for. And as our group um, progressed in sort of a couple of years, it seemed that the dietitian members were the ones that were more active or sort of stayed on. And so we decided that we wanted to. Um, make the group more consolidated around sports nutrition practiced by dietitians and that we would go back to calling ourselves dietitians because that was our point of difference. We were trained as dietitians and we started recognising that there were skill sets within dietetics such as the food service and the clinical counselling and, and um, other aspects that really made us different from other people interested in nutrition. So we formed Sports Dietitians Australia and we had some really remarkable people in that first group. And this is where I need to um, you know, think about people like um, Karen Inge and Helen O'Connor. So Karen was, and is, she's a remarkable person. She's, she's done so much for dietetics. She's had... Um, the ability to be really successful in quite a public way. She's, you know, well known in her media work. Um, but she fell into sports dietetics sort of by accident and used her um, own success and her own contacts to really promote sports dietetics. And 
when we started Sports Dietitians Australia, she said, you know, we really need to have a brand. And she was able to connect us up with some of the food companies that she was um, doing work with privately. Um, and Uncle Toby's and Gatorade were some of those companies. And Uncle Toby's started promoting sports dietitians by um, creating logos for us and creating um, values and mission statements, all sorts of things that I hadn't even thought about as being important to a group. You know, I'd sort of just thought, you know, we got on and did things, whereas they really thought that we needed to create um, an environment and values that we all agreed in and the process of, of doing these things and the way that we communicated and um, advertised ourselves was really part of our success. So Sports Dietitians Australia had logos on things and had a lot of recognition, even when it had a very small number of members. And we were able to sort of bluff our way, if you like, into taking ownership of sports nutrition. And many other countries now look at Australia and say, we're so lucky because in many other countries, you know, nutrition and sports nutrition is run by a whole range of people, some of them not with any credible backgrounds. And, and yet, you know, they have a lot of um, voice in, in the community around it. And we were really able to promote how important that dietetic skill is. We certainly collaborate with other people who have got nutrition skills and interests, but the specific and special role that dietitians can play has really been preserved in Australia and promoted. And I think that's made it much more easy for young dietitians to be able to see a career path and to connect with it rather than having to sort of stumble their way individually like um, I did. And the other person I really need to give a lot of um, attention to now is Helen O'Connor. And unfortunately, at the beginning of this year, Helen passed away from cancer, which was a, a really um, sort of shocking experience for many of us to go through because, um, it was, you know, it's hard to lose friends, but it's also Helen chose not to um, to share her cancer battle with a lot of people. And so one day we just got the news that Helen had died. And she, she at her funeral, we um, so many of us assembled together and just look what, what a remarkable person she was because what she brought to Sports Dietitians Australia, I think, is the, that collaborative spirit. And I think that in the very early days, there were a lot of us that had individually achieved careers and could have had an interest in still being isolationist and, you know, one-upping each other and trying to see who was the best amongst us all. And Helen's really generous spirit was the one that said, no, no, we need to work together and you know she was the really um, strong promoter of we were all successful when we help each other rather than competing with each other and so I think from the outset we had two members who provided us with really important lessons and those lessons have really made um, Sports Dietitians Australia and its members really blossom so I think you know we really need to be thankful to um, to those people in particular for setting us the pathway and the philosophies that have made so many of us have um, happy and successful careers. Mm. I never got to meet Helen, but I've heard so much about her, obviously, in the last year. So, yeah, it was great that you were all able to be together, I think, to, you know, remember those, what a difference you've made for... Oh, look, yeah, and... Some of the things that, you know, that they've given to SDA and to the um, profession are, as I said, those intangibles. 
um, you know, people won't recognise just how important those things are because sometimes the most, um, you know, the things that people look for in terms of success like publications or presentations or something like that, you know, um, they're things you can count, but the intangibles such as just that philosophy or um, the, you know, the, the, the work behind the scenes to make things happen, um, sometimes that doesn't go recognised. And so um, in some ways it was, it, I mean, as I said, it was a really sad experience to, to, um, to be at, at Helen's funeral. But when we were able to all to get together, um, it was a great time to remember her special contribution and remind each other that we have to keep it up. That we know all of us need to um, continue to make Helen's legacy um, be apparent by remembering it, but also by the the way that we continue to um, to promote the profession. And I do remember the launch of SDA. I just graduated as a dietitian in um, 1995 and SDA started in 1996. And I think it was the heyday of SDA in those early days. Look, it was, it, what was so remarkable though was, you know, and um, Karen is wonderful because she's always got what I, you know, call that chutzpah that she just says, look, you know, you, you've got to pretend of what you want to be and then you can grow into it. And, um, you know, the way that we were so cheeky in, in going out and promoting sports dietitians with the logos everywhere on products and all this education material and logos and letterheads and websites to come and what have you, you know, you would have sounded as if we were a very, very strong um, um, group with thousands and millions of members. And in fact, you know, we probably had 30 to start with and yet we were making all this noise and, um it was a bluff, but, you know, sometimes that's what it takes to get you to the point where you can actually become what you're telling people you were. Mm. Karen Inge, I just think, is remarkable as well, and she's definitely a mentor of mine, and I think bringing that, that brand aspect and marketing and business um, mm. I think is so important for us to consider as dietitians in everything that we do. Um, and you've talked about there in terms of the intangible aspects. That's right. What do you think about working with food industries? Oh, look, I look. I had this conversation the other day and I said we have got to go in and reclaim that. Look, okay. it's been a really problematic area, hasn't it? I mean, I've, mm. I've, I've felt frustration at um, DAA as it was with, you know, taking up the sponsorships that um, the perception of which has, you know, been problematic for dietitians. But it is something we have to grab and it's, I know it, it can be a conflict, but the alternative is worse. You know, we should be using our skills and our, our um, success, if you like, as advocates for healthy nutrition and for sustainable nutrition and for all the other, you know, attributes that make up um, good eating. And if we don't do it, um, we can't then complain about what the food industry does, you know, and what we have to do is to create not just the advocacy, but the recognition that people who work in this space um, are working in a, a really important area and we have to give them support and we have to give them, um, you know, our help to do the, the, the job really well. We've really got to, um, I think, work with the food industry rather than and then treating them as the, as the enemy 
we've got to get in and you know realize that there are challenges you know particularly if um, there are different concepts of what success is in terms of you know making money or or whatever it is but it's really important particularly you know as we face these challenges like COVID and climate change, et cetera, that the way that we go back to food agriculture and, and you know, for the whole process from growing to serving it on the plate needs to be done with so much more care and insight. And if we're not part of that conversation, then, you know, we're not doing our job. And you've obviously seen the benefit of some of the development in sports nutrition products. I mean- you know, and it's not just about, you know, commercialising or commodifying um, nutrition. I think, you know, one of the things that we've got to do is be really good advocates for people going back to um, basic principles and understanding food and how to prepare it and, you know, whether it's the sustainability or the hygiene or the nutritional um, characteristics. There's so many... Um, aspects to food but also there's the enjoyment and there's the part of the you know the being of the community and it's been really lovely in COVID to see that some of the ways in which people have coped with um, you know the stress or the new challenges has been through food you know you now hear about people making sourdough bread or growing things in their own little home gardens activities that they wouldn't have had the time to do before and it's created um you know, both practical benefits, but also it's created a, um, you know, a feeling of satisfaction and community. And, um, you know, I, I think that we have to recognise that food does so many different things in people's lives. It's more than just fuel. It's, you know, so much of the culture and the psychology and the happiness of, of what we do and that we have to find ways to make sure that all those aspects of food are fulfilled. And that's why I think our role is... Um, as dietitians in both, you know, sort of the communication, the science, the practicality, and you know, all all those different aspects of food need to be able to be connected and shared and and you know made available to people. And that's why we have to be part of it. And we can't we can't make any part of the whole process the evil part. It's all got to be integrated and seen mm. as contributing to the big picture. And I think. And that's one of the areas in which we may play a role in being able to pull all these separate sides of it together to make sense of it. Mm, that's what I was going to say. It's such a complex food system. And I think dietitians, as you said, can play the connecting role in bringing in the environmental, the food industry, the sociocultural, the nutrition, the science, all of those aspects together. That's really the role that we could play into the future. Absolutely. So I hope people who are listening might feel inspired by this. That there's still, you know, pl- still plenty left in that story. Um, we've we've got to find ways in which we can um, make it richer and and make it more viable for, mm. for more people. Certainly is. Just want to touch on your um, couple more things that you were involved in. So developing the SDA Sports Nutrition course, and you also you've edited a number of books, but in particular, the Sports Nutrition Bible, Clinical Sports Nutrition that you edited with Vicki Deacon. Can you tell us about the role that these have played and the global impact that they've had around the world? Um, yes, and this is a, another example of, of an activity that, that um, evolved. And our first um, thought was that it was going to be a 
book that involved just Australian sports dietitians and that it was really focused on what the course needed, what the sports nutrition course um, that SDA um, went on to to form. And what we wanted to make sure was that people understood that there was a scientific context to the guidelines for sports nutrition, but that we would always think about the how you made them practical and practised as being an important role. So our our sports nutrition text was different to others at the time that it did have that um, part of the, the theme that involved the science and the the knowledge and it was you know very heavily referenced and we wanted to promote this evidence-based approach to sports nutrition but each of our chapters then also had the practice tips of you know what does a sports dietitian need to know to understand how to you know, diagnose or identify when a certain theme needed to be practiced and how to then to um, to implement it in in real life and any tips around how to engage with the athletes and coaches that were the part of the story. So the book was already different to the usual textbook. And then over the years, we realised that um, we needed to be more than just insular, that it, you know that we wanted to have a course for sports dietitians in Australia, but that we were part of a, a global um, population. And that so we started to invite experts from overseas to be able to contribute and to be part of both the course and the book. And the course went on with um, Greg Shaw and and Greg Cox and, and Gary Slater to be run overseas as well as in within Australia, but the book also expanded to involve um, international collaborations. We're in the middle of um, doing our sixth issue or our sixth edition of the book at the moment, um, and we've added Michelle Minahan to our editorship list. But we've also got um, contributors from all around the world, either you know, providing the the science part of it and the practical part of it. And we've had great success in having this picked up all over the world as uh, as a textbook, whether it's in courses or whether it's in the continuing education of many sports nutrition groups as well. So it's been a, a lovely experience to, to see that not only have we made sports nutrition important in Australia, but we've been able to connect up so many other people around the world and, you know, create some really great collaborations and and much better understanding of sports nutrition by having insights from other people and other types of experts involved. Well, I know it's a sought-after um, course for younger dietitians to do the SDA sports nutrition course. So, um well done and congratulations to you and everyone that's been involved in that over the years. It's definitely... And look, particularly the, the younger people running it now, you know, um, I handed it over from um, having a, a day-to-day involvement of at least a decade ago and the, the newer members of um, Sports Dietitians Australia Education Group and particularly the, the Gregs have done a, a remarkable job in making the course um, grow and be contemporary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these days um, it's very much about the implementation or the the way that we can make sports nutrition be alive and be engaging for athletes and coaches. So, you know, the book's there to have people be able to understand the knowledge and they can 
read a lot of it for themselves. And these days the course is really about innovative ways of making sure people understand how to practice sports nutrition in so many different ways rather than just have the knowledge yourself. Absolutely. And many of these sports dietitians have had the great fortune to have you as a mentor. Um, but who's been a mentor for you and why? I know you've mentioned Richard. Is there other people oh, that look, have been? I've been so lucky to have you know so many wonderful mentors. I can think back to um, Mark Hargraves who allowed me to um, do my first studies in his laboratory because, you know, as I said, my PhD was really about um, dietary survey work and I didn't have a hands-on role in the laboratory. So when someone who's successful uh, allowed me to come in and, and be a real novice and uh, probably a nuisance in the first um, studies we did together, but to be able to blossom that um, friendship and collaboration and then through Mark you know I've met so many wonderful people like Dave Costell and Ron Morn's been a, a wonderful friend and um, supporter of mine for, for so many years I've you know I've just enjoyed becoming you know wonderful friendships with so many wonderful people I think you know the Ed Coyles and the Lawrence Spreets and um, Linda Menors is just and I've, if I I've look off can't do justice to yeah. you know, to the wonderful group of people that I I think of as as um, friends and colleagues, mm. and I've been just so lucky to have been um, embraced by all these people and and allowed to pick their brains and share their insights and to um, to promote all the you know opportunities to in sports nutrition that they've had into into my own sphere, and then to be able to introduce you know some of my colleagues and. Um, younger members of staff and be able to make their lives blossom because they've been able to share those same opportunities. It's been a really wonderful experience. Mm, I think that's the great thing about being a dietitian is you have so many wonderful relationships and people become friends through the process. Um, one final question for you, Louise. You recently moved from the AIS to Australian Catholic University full-time. So how does it feel to have moved on after so many years at the AIS and what's in the future for you? Yeah, look, it's it's both really sad and exciting at the same time. Um, I, you know, if you'd said to me six months ago that I'd leave the AIS, I would have, um, I would have laughed. <laughs> um, but COVID's made me realise that you could do things in, in different ways and the AIS is, um, is moving in different directions to the ones that I'm thinking of the, the best for me. I've had wonderful support from Australian Catholic University since 2014. I mean, they've really made possible the, the funding that allowed me to move into this research camp area. And I think that's, you know, a, a, such a, a wonderful opportunity and, and something that I can now do and, and both learn more myself, but also be able to use it as a conduit for involving other people and opening up a sports nutrition career for them. So um, it makes it sort of a no-brainer to say that, that being full-time at the ACU um, side of things is going to help that tremendously. And I still have involvement with the AIS. I'm still doing consultancy for them around some of the activities that we've been doing. Um, and we'll stay in Canberra and hopefully be able to continue to use the AIS facilities to do a lot of the projects that um, that we can fund. But 
um, it, it's really now you know an opportunity for me to move aside and, and let the AIS um, do its new form of business in a different way, um, but still allow the the um, funds and the um, you know the resources that I can cobble together from different areas to be able to continue that work in a slightly different environment. Well, what a magnificent career to date with so many highlights um, and looking forward to seeing what you do in the next chapter here um, at ACU. And thank you so much for all that you ha do and continue to do for the profession and particularly our sports dietitians colleagues. Um, as well, I said at the thank beginning. Thank you very much for the, the opportunity today to talk about it. And I, I mean, I, I really, I think if you've, caught any of the thread that I've been talking about you know I've just been so lucky to have had opportunities that have been made possible so by so many other people and often you know I, I might be the one that gets the accolade or the interview to explain what new achievement has um, been made but you know I, there's nothing that I've done on my own in my career it's certainly been a, um, a group effort and the one of the things that I hope that I can now do um, at ACU is to organise a reunion of AIS sports nutrition as as an opportunity to thank and just celebrate with so many of the wonderful colleagues that I've had over the years, just what AIS sports nutrition did do over its years and um, hopefully be able to connect with a whole lot of new threads that all those wonderful people have gone on to um, pursue. Mm. That would be fabulous. And it's been such a privilege to talk to you today, Louise. It's something I, I've just admired you for many years, even though I'm not in the sports dietetics field, I do come across many people that have had the good fortune to have been mentored by you and, and seen the work that you've done over all of the years. And yeah, thank you again for everything that you do. And thanks for being part of the Dietitian Connection podcast today. I really appreciate your time. Look, I have to say one more thing, and that sure. is... Part of going to ACU is going to be that I get to work with my husband and he's been a wonderful support um, over so many years. I didn't manage to get that in. No. Um, he's got his own, you know, wonderful research career, but we've intersected on on so many ways. And um, he is now technically my boss, although I always get the last word. Um, <laughs> and the last word would be that, you know, he is um, – it's 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 so wonderful when you can um, marry not just your best friend but um, your best collaborator. And so, part of the new way forward at ACU is going to be you know doing many more things together. And I'm looking forward to that. What is his area of expertise? Well, he's into nutrition and exercise, but um, mm -hmm. more particularly in the health angle um, over the last years. He he, he was working as a, a physiologist in sports performance when we first met. But, you know, he's um, taken on one of the sort of less frivolous sides of nutrition and exercise, if you like. But we certainly intersect with a lot of ways in which what we work out or can learn from elite athletes and their nutrition and exercise interactions can be then integrated into benefits to the community through better use of nutrition and exercise. So yeah. we're looking for ways where... Um, I can still make athletes go higher, faster and stronger, but he's looking after the ways in which it makes the world better. Mm, wonderful. And I know your son's very important to you as well. Do we know what he might want to do in the future? Oh, look, we we hope that it'll be something that involves exercise and nutrition. Mm. Um, he certainly, as a, as a swimmer now, um, gets to eat and train <laughs> to um, find new ways of doing things better. 
but mm. uh, he's he's been a remarkable um, output of our partnership and looking at his career and what he'll come up to will be one of the um the, the fun things of our yeah. future together so yeah. we're, we're a pretty tight little unit and yeah. um, it's all about how how much we can exercise and how much we can eat well over each day wonderful i think you've um concluded very appropriately there louise about you know <laughs> we're not all doing this alone there's a team and a support network around all of us and um, how fabulous it is to have those relationships and connections that allow us to do what we do every day. So thank you again for being part of the Dietitian Connection podcast and sharing your journey with us. Um, It's just been a privilege. So thanks again for your time today. A pleasure. Thanks for listening. Wherever in the world you're tuning in from, If you did enjoy this podcast episode, we would really appreciate if you could leave a review for us. Leaving a review actually means the podcast gets to more dietitians and it can only elevate our profession if we work together. So please hit that review button. Tell us and other people what you thought about this episode. Another way to share your learnings from this episode and keep the conversation going is to take a screenshot of your phone screen, add your message and share it on social media. Don't forget to tag us at Dietitian Connection so we can share it with our following of over 30,000. Tell us what you learned and what future topics you'd like us to cover. If you'd like to access the show notes, they are available at dietitianconnection.com forward slash podcasts. Dietitian Connection is a global community and we offer free professional development, job opportunities, resources and connections. We're committed to bringing dietitians together so we can create more impact and elevate our profession. And you can easily become a Dietitian Connection member for free by signing up at dietitianconnection.com.